0: Deuteronomy chapter 12, verses 1 to 19, and then verses 29 to 32. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess, as long as you live in the land. Destroy completely all the places on the high mountains and on the hills and under every spreading tree where the nations you are dispossessing worship their gods. Break down their altars. "'Smash their sacred stones, and burn their Asherah poles in the fire. "'Cut down the old idols of their gods, and wipe out their names from those places. "'You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, "'but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose "'from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. "'To that place you must go. "'There bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, "'your tithes and special gifts, what you have vowed to give, and your freewill offerings, and the firstborn of your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your families shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you have put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. You are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit, since you have not yet reached the resting place and the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. But you will cross the Jordan and settle in the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. And he will give you rest from all your enemies around you, so that you will live in safety. Then, to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name, there you are to bring everything I command you, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, and all the choice possessions you have vowed to the Lord. And there rejoice before the Lord your God, you your sons and daughters your men servants and maid servants and the levites from your towns who have no allotment or inheritance of their own be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anyway please offer them only at the place the lord will choose in one of your tribes and there observe everything i command you nevertheless you may slaughter your animals in any of your towns and eat eat as much of the meat as you want as if it were gazelle or deer according to the blessing the lord your god gives you Both the ceremonially unclean and the clean may eat it, but you must not eat the blood. Pour it out on the ground like water. You must not eat in your own towns the tithe of your grain, and your new wine and oil, or the firstborn of your herds and flocks, or whatever you have vowed to give, or your freewill offerings or special gifts. Instead, you are to eat them in the presence of the Lord your God, at the place the Lord your God will choose, you, your sons and daughters, your men servants and maid servants, and the Levites from your towns. And you are to rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. Be careful not to neglect the Levites as long as you live in your land. And now, verse 29. The Lord your God will cut off before you the nations you are about to invade and dispossess. But when you have driven them out and settled in their land, and after they have been destroyed before you, be careful not to be ensnared by inquiring up about their gods, saying, How do these nations serve their gods? We will do the same. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, because in worshipping their gods they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. See that you do all I command you. Do not add to it or take away from it. This is God's word.
1: Let's uh, pray together as we look at this. Our Father God, you are a God who loves to meet with his people, and you speak to us, we hear you, and you change us as you speak. We pray you'll be about that work this morning as we turn to your word. And Father, this particular chapter, as we consider how you would have us worship you, would we hear it rightly, so that all that we do is pleasing before you? And as you command us to do, is joy for us, so we would rejoice in being your people and in worshipping you. We pray it through Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this week it was a warm week, wasn't it? Uh, most days, I was working from home uh, one day this week, and uh, to me, I got a little bit bored. More than that, I got a little bit bored. I got a little bit frisky, so I, uh, I decided just to go around the door, uh, around the corner of our estate, and I had sex with uh, one of the neighbours. It was it was convenient. Uh, I mean, it wasn't great, to be honest, but it was quite fun. It satisfied a need. I probably won't do it again, but it worked for me that day, and I felt better afterwards. Is that all right? <laughs> now, that is not true. <laughs> and I'll be enormously appreciative of those who uh, post uh, sermons on the internet. Uh, don't do what they sometimes do and uh, uh, edit me out of context and throw it up and think it's very funny. Don't do that with that one. <laughs> because it's not true. With that true, you should sack me. I'll be done. That's fine. But that's wrong, is it? We know that's wrong. We feel that's wrong instinctively that you know that would be entirely inappropriate for me to do. We know that. And you can turn to something like Deuteronomy twelve and think, well, it's a bit strong, isn't it? This emphasis that the Lord says on exclusively worship me and destroy the other God that's a bit strong. But we don't think that about marriage. We think it's entirely wrong and inappropriate. For me to say, yeah, I've got a wife, but I just fancied a little bit of something else today. That's all right, isn't it? No. But the Lord here, he's saying to his people, don't have that attitude to me. Well, we worship the Lord, but today we want to be a little bit of this. That's all right, isn't it? No. No, it's not. Exclusive devotion is what the Lord is calling for here in Deuteronomy chapter 12. Just like in a marriage, you know, you go to a... a uh, a marriage and uh, the standard sort of wedding language or liturgy uh, We have the uh, the point in the service. Groom, will you take bride, not normally their names, but anyway, you get the point. Groom, will you take bride to be your wife? Will you love her, comfort her, honour and protect her, and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live? I will. Uh, I will, uh, depending on uh, how nervous they may be. Forsaking all others, of course. That's what we expect in a marriage. Deuteronomy 12 is to say, of course. That's what the Lord expects of his people. You forsake all others in order to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now we're returning then to uh, Deuteronomy and over the next ten weeks we we'll look at the Ten Commandments. It seems to work out quite well that way. Uh, but we're looking at how they appear in the body of Deuteronomy. This little section, Deuteronomy largely as a book, chapters 1 to 11, Moses is appealing, he's preaching his heart out. He's appealing to the people, keep God's laws. You get the same, really, 29 to 30. This middle section, particularly chapter 12, verse 1 to, to 26, 16, are the laws, the content. Here's what loving the Lord looks like in the detail of life. And broadly... Broadly, These chapters, 12 to 26, they unpack the Ten Commandments. It's not always obvious that that's going on, but I think broadly you can say they go through them one through to ten. And so I think chapter 12 is really focusing on the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And so what the setting here is, Moses is telling the people, okay, do you remember 40 years ago, or 40 odd years ago, the Lord gave the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai. Now we're going into the Promised Land. Here's how they look. Those Ten Commandments, here's how they'll apply in this new place. Uh, So that's what this section is. Loving the Lord in the details of life. Now, we'll return to this uh, some sort of interpretive comments. We'll drip them in week by week. But let me just throw in a few as we come to look at this section, 12 to 26. You already have got the uh, the idea. Some of these rules, they seem a little bit distant from us. Not many of us are preparing our own meat, etc. Let me just make a few introductory comments. One, laws are always a response to what God has done. That's always the case. In the Bible, you are loved by the Lord, therefore obey him. Is what you got in Deuteronomy? Never, if you obey him, he'll love you. It's never that way around. You are loved, therefore obey. That's the, that's the whole setting of Deuteronomy. You've got the, the frame of it, explaining what the Lord has done before you get the laws uh, in the middle. Love is always a response to grace. Secondly, th- there is a big gap between the original hearers and us. It's obvious in two ways. There's a cultural gap. The 21st, 21st century London is different from the promised land thousands of years ago. It's obviously a little bit different in around 1400 BC. So at some point, you, you have to say, well, what is the purpose of this law? And that's something we do naturally, inherently, all the time. Imagine this way. A child gets into a car, a young child, and dad says, uh, daughter, put your seatbelt on. And she does. She puts the seatbelt on. When the child is at home in her kitchen, there is no seatbelt. I don't know how to keep that law, Daddy, the seatbelt law. Well, it's be safe. There's a principle you can extract. And sometimes, we have to work it out in the details, sometimes there'll be those broad applications that will come out. There's a cultural gap. But more acutely, there's a theological gap between them then and us three and a half thousand years later. Because... We live this side of the work of Jesus Christ. And so we have to allow him, his person, his work, his death and resurrection, ascension, we have to allow him to interpret or translate or filter all these laws from the Old Testament before we undertake them ourselves. Many years ago, I went to Central America and uh, in Nicaragua, staying in a fairly remote uh, part of uh, the country. Now, the locals seemed to drink the water from the uh, the well, no problem. Uh, the 12 of us who'd gone out from the UK, if we drank that water, we got bugs, we got sick, so we had to filter it. It worked for them. We just needed a bit of extra filtering for our pewy Western, feeble stomachs uh, for it to work. And... It, These laws in Deuteronomy, they need filtering for us through Jesus Christ. For he is God's final and fullest revelation. And so we never want to read this and apply it straight to ourselves. It's always got to be filtered through the work of Jesus Christ. Sometimes people chop up the Old Testament into different types of laws. I'm not quite sure that sometimes works, it sometimes doesn't. I think it's easiest to say we keep all of the Old Testament, all of these laws, once they've been filtered through Jesus Christ. We'll come back to those uh, in later weeks. The broad principle of chapter 12, that is, who are you going to worship? Don't worship God like them, but worship the Lord alone, exclusively. No others, just him. So two things, uh, two points we're going to make it. There's a negative and a positive. Don't, first then, don't worship God like them. You get it uh, in the framing of the chapter, really, uh, verses uh, 2 to 4, and then 29 to the end. Let me just uh, highlight uh, verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, the Canaanite nations. And then uh, verse 31, you must not worship the Lord your God in their way. So Israel, you're moving into a new area, a new geographical region, Canaan. There are people living there already. Don't worship gods like them. Don't do that. Don't do that. Now, we'll largely work through it, but of course it raises an issue. You look at chapter 12. Verse 2, destroy. Verse 3, break down their altars, stones, poles. The Israelites are told to completely destroy all these old symbols of Canaanite religion. Now, that sort of command is pretty offensive. To a modern mindset. Isn't this intolerant? Isn't it imperialistic? Isn't it iconoclastic? Why would you do such a thing? Why destroy altars and sacred stones? We should take the sort of 19th century British approach. Don't, don't destroy them. Steal them. Put them in the British Museum. Say that we'll look after them better than anyone else in the world will do and you can't have them back. That's a sensible approach. Don't destroy them. That's just, is barbaric! It's all wrong. Would be a sort of modern mindset. Well, three little comments on that. One, you have to reckon that the Canaanite religion was abhorrent. So, just forgive me. The last time we bounced, but uh, just at the end of the chapter, verse thirty-one. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way because, in worshiping their gods, they do all kinds of detestable things the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters in the fire as sacrifices to their gods. Oh, So the law says, don't go there and think, oh, this is interesting. Let me, let me observe Canaanite religion. Let me try and understand why they do such a thing. Uh, let me take some photos and write a PhD about how interesting it is. Don't do that. It's wicked. Destroy it. Stop it. And all the, the things that might sort of tempt you to investigate it further, get rid of them. It is absolutely awful. They were sacrificing their children. Get rid of that. Now, so even in today, in the 21st century, that you know, uh, in the West, we're all for you know, don't you know, accept other cultures as far as we can. Don't judge. Don't force your opinions, you know, in France, well, they can they can ban uh, the burqas, but in the UK, we mustn't do that, that would just be wrong, you know, we're all for sort of, you know, cultural toleration, but even here we have our limits. So the papers quite often, recent days, female, genital mutilation, how do we feel about that? Should we let them do it? I mean, it's just an expression of that, no, no, it's against the law, has been for 30 years. And yet we still don't want to talk about it. You won't get many public figures commenting on it because it just feels a little bit awkward commenting on someone else's culture. However many it is, 60-odd thousand suffering long-term health issues. But, I mean, it's against the law. We've done our bit. Don't talk about it because people might get upset. So even things which we think are wrong in this country, we get a little bit nervous about condemning. Whereas the Lord is quite happy to say, that is wrong, wipe it out. It is wrong. There's some sense in that, I think. So look, Canaanite religion, it was abhorrent. You can't live next door to people who sacrifice their children without being corrupted by that. Without it doing something to you. If you don't find that abhorrent, you don't act to stop that, it's going to affect you. Don't do that. It's abhorrent. Uh, I guess, two other quick, quick, faster comments. It's pervasive. So right at the beginning of the chapter, it's amazing where everything is. So uh, chapter 12, verse 2, destroy completely. Where are these things? Well, they're on the high mountains. They're on the hills. They're under every spreading tree. And what do they look like? Well, verse 3, there's altars. There's sacred stones. There's asherah poles. There's idols. There's nape. You get the sense there's a pervasiveness. These symbols are everywhere. And so it requires fairly dramatic action to get rid of them. If you're an alcoholic, it's no good resolving, I'm going to get rid of all the beer and the homebrew in the kitchen. But leaving the spirits in the lounge, it's no good. You've got to get rid of everything. If you're going to take that seriously and not return to the drink, and the Lord is saying, just get rid of everything. This abhorrent religion, it's everywhere, destroy it all, get rid of it. And I guess you'd have to say in the New Testament, Jesus demands a similar form of aggression against pervasive threats to our love for the Lord. So in Matthew 6, Jesus will say, your hand causes you to sin, well, chop it off. And your eye causes you to sin, gouge it out. Because you can't say that in a wooden sense, because it's not as if the right hand and right eye are far more simple than the left hand and left eye, and if you get rid of one, all will be well. No, Jesus is saying, do what it takes. Whatever it takes to stop you being pulled away from your love of the Lord and your service of him. It's the same message here in Deuteronomy. So this religion was abhorrent, it was pervasive. Last comment here. It is our nose that give value to our yes. Example, if I said to you, I love my wife. I love my wife, Kerry. She's a delight to me. you say, well, that's nice. I said, I do love her. And I love my second wife, Marjorie. And my third wife, Tracy. And my fourth wife, Valerie. And my fifth wife, I can't remember her name, but I love her too. And uh, my mistresses, I love all of them. I do love them all. At that point, you, oh, so what was the first one called? Kerry? You, sort of, you spread your love around a little bit, don't you, reverend? Um, it's not ideal for a minister uh, to be acting that sort of way. You see, what we say no to obviously strengthens our yes. I love my wife and no others like her. Oh, right. Okay. And knows strengthen our yeses. That's why when you marry, you say, I will forsake all others. And it's just the same here. The Lord is saying to his people, the Israelites then, all these things you say no to, they strengthen your love for me. It makes it far more meaningful. When we say, whatever it may be, when we say, no, I'm not just going to roll over. I'm going to get up and spend some time with the Lord. We have said no, it strengthens our yes. When we uh, say, I, it's a busy week, but I am going to make time for the Lord, I'm going to say no to something in order to spend time with Him, that strengthens our yes. When we say, I'd quite like to do that, it, uh, that sin would make me feel much better, you know. When we say no to that, it strengthens our yes for the Lord. We know that. The things we say no to mean our yes. Is a lot more significant as an expression of love. So don't worship God like them. Don't be like them. Don't do what they do. But the positive, and here's where we spend a, the rest of our time. Worship the Lord alone. Verses 5 to 14. Let's pick it up. Verse 5. Or well, let's read even verse 4. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way. Don't do what they do. But... But you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. There bring your burnt offerings, sacrifices, tithes, special gifts, uh, things you vowed to give, and your free will offerings, the firstborn, your herds and flocks. There, in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice in everything you've put your hand to, because the Lord your God has blessed you. So here's a change. Uh for the last 40 years the Israelites have been wandering in the desert. And uh, they've all been together, all one big kind of happy camping trip. Uh but uh, uh, the Lord has been there, the tabernacle, the central place where uh, God who lives everywhere dwelt intensely, representatively, covenantally you could say. But he's there dwelling amongst them intensely. But they're all together. Now they're going to be spread out across the promised land. So how should they worship the Lord? He's no longer just a five-minute walk away, as it were. What are they going to do? You need some new rules to explain what's going on. Well, says the Lord, when you enter the promised land, there will be one place to worship me. Just, it'll be different. But the issue actually isn't really the place, it's the person. Because the place changes in the Bible. The issue is the person. So, for example, years ago, uh, I had um, six weeks traveling uh, the States. Uh, in my student days, I remember it well, I went traveling with a friend, uh, Steve, and uh, every night I'd go to bed and there was Steve. And Everybody would wake up in hotels or railway stations. I couldn't get away from the bloke, and we just about managed to stay friends after six weeks of traveling uh, together. Uh, at the end of six weeks, we came back to the UK. I was living in Birmingham. And he lived in Reading. Whereas I'd seen him every day, I couldn't get away from the bloke. Now, in order to see him, I had to go to Reading. What was special about Reading? Have you been there? Nothing. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But he lived there. And that's the point. I mean, as much the language focuses on the place, but the issue really is the person. The place is only valued because the Lord is there. And it's not even named in chapter 12. That's because the place where the Lord will dwell moves. So for much of the Old Testament, it's Shiloh then it's Jerusalem. And then in the New Testament, it's Jesus. He says, I am the place you come to, to meet with the Lord. You don't physically need to go to any geographical location. You come to me, says Jesus. Christians enjoy going to visit Jerusalem. Historically, it's interesting. But there's nothing more spiritual about visiting Jerusalem than there is German Street down the road. Begin with J, take your pick. One is more expensive, I'm not sure which though. You go to Jesus, he is the place. That's where the emphasis is. So go there, but there's only one place. You can really worship me, says the Lord. And again, the negative makes it clear what he's saying. So verse 8, you are not to do as we do here today, everyone as he sees fit. You can't just do as you please. Or verse 13, be careful not to sacrifice your burnt offerings anywhere you please. You can't just do what you want, says the Lord. There's a certain way in which to worship me. I mean, really, chapter 12 is don't do what they do. Don't do whatever you want. Worship me like this. Don't do what they do. You can't just do whatever you feel like. You worship me like this. You don't worship the Lord on your own terms. You don't just do what's convenient for you. It's Him that is the most important thing. Deuteronomy 12 calls us to know what God desires and worship Him in the way that He says. And our own personal preferences are a long second to what he requires. Now, I guess at the most, the broadest level, what does that mean? Well, for those who are, how do you call it, outside the church, or wouldn't yet necessarily call themselves Christians, you can't just worship God any way you want. A little while ago, I read an interview with Dawn French, the vicar of Dibley, uh, she was uh, one of her famous roles. She was asked, are you a believer? Her Her response, yes. I think like a lot of people, I've got my own little version of religion going on. To which the Lord says, don't do that. Don't do what you want. Don't just think you can do whatever pleases you. That's no good. You can't just do what you want. The New Testament is clear. There is only one way to worship the Lord, and that's through Jesus Christ. There is only one way you could be saved for eternity, for joy and pleasure with him in the new creation. That's through Jesus Christ. There's one name that matters, and that's Jesus Christ. You can't just have your own little version of religion going on. You can't say, for me, personally, mm." no, no, you can't do that. It's through him. And inside the church, we just need to be a little careful. Now, of course, there are varying cultural expressions in how we worship the Lord. So here we are, we're Christians gathered today, and it looks a bit different as if we're in West Africa or in South Korea or in Alaska, I take it. A few more clothes. But it'll vary culturally also, the worship of the Lord. That's true. But we just need to be a little bit careful. And make sure we've got what he wants clear in our heads before we go, before we end up saying, well, I don't like it there, the music's a bit funny, I don't like it there, the preaching's a bit long. Well, okay, but you are clear what the Lord wants from meetings with him, aren't you? Because that must matter, most of all. Let's just look at, I mean, there's plenty here, but we'll look at a few of the details. Because Deuteronomy 12 does give us some principles. Here is how you should worship. You can't just worship the Lord as you please. What would it be like? I don't know. A, a hammock? Nice lunch? A bottle of wine? 23 degrees? Lying in the sun? Lord, this is how I choose to worship you each and every day. That would be alright. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but that's not all there is. What does the Lord say? Well, here are a few. Here are four principles, I think, that the the passage would throw up. Deuteronomy 12, chiefly concerned with when the people gather together. But I think, of course, you'd have to say that worship is what we do with all of our lives. And so there are echoes for the entirety of our lives. So here are four. Uh, The first, then, uh, the worship the Lord requires in in Deuteronomy 12, it's responsive. It's a response to what the Lord has already done. So verse 1. These are the decrees and laws you must be careful to follow. In the land the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you. He's given you land. Uh, Verse 7. He has blessed you with a whole variety of things. Verse 9. You're going to the resting place, the inheritance the Lord your God is giving you. He's giving you. Verse 10, an inheritance. So, again, just to be clear, the worship the Lord requires is a response to what has been done. Jesus has saved you, so live for him. Not, if you live for him, he might just save you. It's always a response to him. It's responsive. Uh, It's joyful. It's one of the uh, the, uh, little drum beats of the passage. So, um... Uh, verse 7, we're told this. There in the presence of the Lord your God, you and your family shall eat and shall rejoice. Got to do that when you meet with the Lord. Or verse 12. There, rejoice before the Lord your God. You, your sons and daughters, and on it goes. Uh, 30, verse 18. Halfway through, you, your sons, daughters, men, servants, maid, servants, you are to Rejoice before the Lord your God in everything you put your hand to. We are meant to enjoy what the Lord has given us and enjoy living for him and serving him, just like our kids' slots. There is actually joy in obedience. We're meant to be a people of thankfulness. Uh, This long section, we didn't have it all read, but just at the end, verses 15 to 28, it's a long section, essentially making one point. Enjoy yourselves, enjoy meat. (laughs) Uh, Before, when you were all together on your one big camping trip, if you wanted to uh, make an offering of, if you wanted to eat meat, it's alright, you offered some to the Lord, because he was a five minute walk away, and then you ate the rest, no problem. Now you're going to be scattered all over, what do you do? Because you can't always offer a bit of the the cow or the the lamb that you, you you uh, kill uh, to the Lord. Well, enjoy it is the main point. Verse twenty: When the Lord your God has enlarged your territory, He's promised you today. What do you do when you crave meat? I really want some meat. Eat some meat. Eat as much as you want. I do want you to enjoy what I've given you. Oh, that, that little section will also say: Do it appropriately. Do it thankfully. Uh, don't don't just slaughter animals willy nilly. But enjoy. But in this chapter, three times, when you come before the Lord, rejoice. That is not incidental to the life of a believer. It's intrinsic. There was one thing I read this week that really got under my skin, so let me sort of share my frustration or pain with you. Uh, One commentator put it this way. To be lukewarm as a Christian... Is a violation of the first commandment to have no other gods before the Lord. What do you think of that? To be lukewarm as a Christian is a violation of the first commandment. I thought, oh, thanks, you know, I don't need you making me feel guilty. And moved on. But he kind of niggled. And so it sort of kept back to me a day or so later. I thought, okay, what's that? well, there's some truth to that, isn't there? Because if we're lukewarm for the Lord, it's because we're more animated about something else. We're more excited or fearful about something else than him. And so probably I have, at that moment, put another God, functionally, that day, that week, before him. That slightly niggled me. The Lord doesn't just ask us to obey him. Grin and bear it. On you go. He is here saying, from my people, I don't just expect mundane or frustrated or resentful obedience. I I want their emotional life. I want their passions. These laws are meant to be on their heart. So they know them and they care about them and they rejoice as they serve me. That's quite demanding, isn't it? it's up, how do you do it? How do you do it when life is hard? How do you do it when things are going wrong, when your week at work is, is just disastrous, when your business is going down the tubes, when someone you love is suffering and in pain? What do you do? It is possible, according to the Bible, to still rejoice. The Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians 6, describes himself as sorrowful yet rejoicing, sorrowful yet joyful, I've pondered that a lot. Pondered intensely last December when we said goodbye to our little daughter. What does it mean to be sorrowful, which I am, and it's painful and it hurts right now, and yet joyful? And I think he said, that's all right, you can grieve in life, but there's always reason to rejoice before the Lord. If you're a Christian, you can always rejoice in what's been done for you, that you've been saved that you know the Lord as Father, that you know he is working good for you supremely, that Jesus will take you to be with him in glory. And there are no tears. And there's no pain there. It doesn't remove the grief here and now, but it means you can both be sorrowful and joyful. And so here the call of God's people is as we live lives as Christians, rejoice, rejoice in what the Lord has given you and enabled you to do. So it's response, uh, it's joyful, it's rejoicing. Uh, two more briefly. It's costly. Costly. These lists, these long lists you get. So, for example, verse 6, bring your burnt offerings, that's when you burn everything of an animal. Sacrifices, you get to eat the meat, but you can burn the fat and blood. Tithes, 10% of your what you've grown, etc. Special gifts, uh, free will offerings, some more spontaneous things, these long lists. But... It's costing you quite a lot to worship the Lord. And then you've got to go to Jerusalem. Well, eventually, Shiloh, then you've got to go to Jerusalem three times a year. And you're told you've got to take all your staff with you. <laughs> uh, everyone's got to go the, the, the men servants, the maid servants. Well, that's expensive. It costs a lot. Yeah. Yeah. That's how it is. Worshipping the Lord, it, it'll cost. If it costs you nothing, it's not probably sincere worship, I guess. Not just financially. If you're in the Middle East, if you're in Iraq, following the Lord, worshiping the Lord, it hasn't cost you your life, maybe. In the West, we're a little bit nervous about saying something unpopular that the Bible says because it might cost us a little bit of credibility. We don't want to do that. It's might be a It'll cost you following the Lord. So, it's a response. Uh, it's uh, joyful. It's costly. It is social. You do all this together. So, verse 12, for example, rejoice before the Lord, you, your sons, your daughters, your men servants, your maid servants, the Levites, those who have got nothing. Take everyone with you. If you're running a company and you go on holiday and you say to the staff, Oh, come with me. That's really expensive. But that's what you do. Here, don't see me. You're not obliged to do that if you're in a company. But here he's saying, everyone, don't leave anyone out, will you? Because you can't claim to love the Lord if you don't love his people, even the slightly awkward ones. Because you do this together. Look, all of those we could spend much time on. But uh, this worship of the Lord here, it's a response to God's grace, it's rejoicing. It's costly. It's social. The Lord is saying, I want absolute loyalty. No other gods. You've got to forsake all others. I want you. I don't want to share you. Absolute loyalty is what the Lord asks. But you're going to do that. You do need to know who he is and what he's done. We you know this story gets told uh, in India. I think the, uh, a tribe of a local uh, tribe of a family in a, a little area, uh, a tri- tribal chief, wife, and a young child. Uh, one day they're in their hut and uh, there's a fire. And it gets burned, it's burning, and the, the the dad tries to save them. Something falls on his head, and he, him and the mum uh, they're they're caught in the fire, knocked unconscious. can't get out, and the whole thing is burning down and the child too. Uh, one person in the tribe runs in, pulls apart the debris. Burns himself, gets scarred face, scarred hands, pulls apart the debris, tries to drag them or drags them out, but only the child lives. So only the son of the child is still alive. And they say, well, who should bring this child up? It's quite an honour to bring up the child of the chief. Who will do such a thing? Well, the strongest man in the tribe says, I should do it, I'm the strongest man in the tribe. Then the wealthiest comes along and says, no, I should do it, I'm the wealthiest one of the tribe. And then the wise man, the wisest one says, no, I'm the wisest, I should bring up this child. And eventually, someone puts up his hand and his hands are burned and they're scarred. And he says, well, I I rescued this one. At cost to myself, I should bring up this child. And they say, yes. That's a twee story in one sense. But of course, if you're going to Follow the Lord with all your heart. If you're going to worship him, not like they do, not as you want to do, but as he wants you to do, you do need to, because it's costly, you need to know that Jesus Christ is the strongest, the wisest, the richest. But he's the one who will sacrifice, who has sacrificed himself for you. He is worthy of your love. There is no other like him. So worship him with all your heart. Have no other gods before him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the bluntness of your language. Sometimes we need it. And in a culture where we are surrounded by many things that would lead us astray from you, we have many idols that distract us, many things that we set our hearts on rather than you. Would you give us such a clear vision of the Lord Jesus, who he is, what he's done, how good it is to be a follower of him, that we love you as a response to what you've done, accepting that it'll cost us sometimes, Pursuing you together with great joy. And in doing so, would our worship, when we gather together, would the worship of the whole of our lives be a pleasing, be a delight to you through our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.